Good morning. I know we have a few visitors today, so welcome. We are a non-denominational church, but if you watch our kids or look at them, we might be Pentecostal. I don't know. They, hopefully it's not too distracting. Our kids love to worship, and so uh, hopefully you do too. Uh, but yes, anyway, uh, welcome to Cornerstone Church, and uh, I know when winter fades, the spring will come, and amen. Anyway, okay, out of context. We are in Philippians. Uh, if uh, you are visiting, we are almost uh, done with the entire letter to the Philippians. Uh, we are in verses 8 and 9 today, where the God of peace dwells. The Apostle Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. The Heavenly Father, God, we, we come as... as, as sinful humans, and who there is no moral excellence, God. As, as we sang today and reminded through the gospel, through the adoption of, of, of you, Father, and the redemption through the Son and new life and transformation and the assurance of salvation through the Holy Spirit, God, you can form us into he who is pure and he who is morally excellent and is the standard that none of us can achieve None of us base our salvation in, none of us are, are in ourselves, that we, we cannot come to you on our own merit or effort or what we have tried to do that we consider as excellent, Lord. My God, we put our trust in the one who was sinless and who became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, I pray that you, your son, Spirit will be glorified in this hour. Help us to understand your word. Call us to respond to it so that we may be imitators of our Lord Christ Jesus. Amen. Last week in the previous verses, Paul told the Philippians not to be anxious and instead by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let their requests be made known to God. And he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. That was verses 6 and 7. Now, in verses 8 and 9, Paul tells them to focus their mind on these eight adjectives. What is true? What is honorable? What is pure? What is just? As well as to imitate him in verse 9, and in doing so, by applying verses 8 and 9, the God of peace will be with them. It may be worth noting that if you have your Bibles and look in verses 6 and 7, when, when they are applied, Paul says, the peace of God will guard us. And now when we look at verses 8 and 9 today, when they are applied, Paul says, the God of peace will be with us. 
something about peace there, and it's almost as if the Word of God anticipates the storms that form in each one of our lives and points us toward God, who is able to still the storm or calm our hearts, even if it still rages. In today's passage, Paul tells the Philippians, one of the ways that God quiets our heart, even in the midst of the storm, is when we draw our attention to whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, and praiseworthy. Now, there might be very little debate or some debate as to which of these or what each of these precisely mean. I think the application is straightforward. Dwell on these things. When I began teaching fifth grade Sunday school, I had about 15 young boys who I knew were all very vulnerable to everything they saw on TV, everything they listened to on the radio, Everything they talked about or heard among their friends. So I developed a ditty to remind them that it matters what they fill their mind with. And the ditty was garbage in, garbage out. So all throughout Sunday school, I would, I would just shout out garbage in and they would have to respond garbage out. And I would probably do that three or four times. Garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. Sorry, you didn't have to do that, but I appreciate the... <laughs> that's... Now, the purpose for them to recite that ditty was so that one day if they found that, that their thoughts and their lives had, had become perverted, impure, depressed, lacked joy or lacked peace, etc., that hopefully they will come to the conclusion that it may just be from whatever they've been filling their minds with. Now, appreciate you said garbage out when I said garbage in, because the same is true for us as adults. What we watch, what we listen to, the company we keep, what we spend our time doing, and what we continue to think about that they're all influential in how we think and how we act. And whether we know it or not, or even like it or not, our influences become transformational. Or as my fifth grade Sunday school boys would say, garbage in, garbage out. We are what we eat. Therefore, today's passage calls us to respond to God, respond to his word by choosing to dwell on that which is good. So I've listed three points to help us do so. Respond to truth, focus on what is true, and dwell with the God of peace. Number one, respond to truth. It should come as no surprise. We live in an age where the very concept of truth is being rejected. The opponents of objective and absolute truth are replacing the essence of what's factual 
with their own experience and rationality. And, and they've concluded if something isn't true for them, then it isn't true to them. And so they, they, with, with that mindset, they encourage the world and those around them to live your truth and speak your truth. Which means that the standard of truth then becomes an individual's perception of reality instead of adequately responding to what is factual. Love what we, we may perceive something to be true and may have even genuinely believed it to be true for many years. We may even still wish it were true. But honesty and integrity will submit feelings, experiences, and desires to whatever is factual, to whatever is true. When a person becomes convinced that there is no absolute truth, Whatever is true for them becomes reality to them. That person begins down a path of destruction without anchoring themselves or ourselves in absolute truth. We're no longer individuals who have any foundation to stand on. And so therefore, when the wind blows and the waves come crashing in on us, there will be nothing left to keep us afloat. At that point, you might as well do what Jesus says. Just, just tie a stone around your ankle or around your neck and let yourself sink to the bottom of the abyss. Because there's no coming back to the surface unless you embrace absolute truth. Believing otherwise or contrary to absolute truth is a deadly poison. Our generation is drinking from that cup and slowly dying. Yet, embracing absolute truth or just embracing something as true is still not enough to help us reemerge to the surface. If we're drowning in that abyss, we must respond to truth appropriately. The Gospel of John tells us of a man who knew the truth he knew what was true, and yet he refused to act on it accordingly. If familiar with Pontius Pilate, you'll know he's one of the greatest examples of someone who knew something to be true and still chose to dismiss it. In John 18, Pilate says to Jesus, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate says, you are king, men. And Jesus answered, you say that I am king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate said, what is truth? What is truth? He just told you, Pilate. 
He said, I came to testify to the truth, right? Then everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And Jesus said, I am the truth, Pilate. That's what Jesus is saying. What I say is truth, and there is nothing false in me. So therefore, those who are on the side of truth, they listen to me because they know when the word of the Lord is spoken, it is intended to be received as factual and submitted to. Pilate's not interested, though, in making choices that are supported by truth. He's more concerned with his own image than he is with his own integrity. Pilate knows that Jesus is an innocent man because right after he asked Jesus what truth is, it says, Pilate went out to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. That's what Pilate said. Pilate declared Jesus' innocence. And yet, he still handed him over to be crucified. He may not have been fully aware who Jesus was, but he was fully aware of what Jesus wasn't. And Jesus was not guilty of sin. And Pilate knew that. That's just one example that shows us that, that, that a person can know what's factual, they can know what's true, and still choose not to side with it. It tells us knowledge alone is not enough. It must result. The knowledge of what's true must result in proper action. is a side note, but I'd suggest to you today that the reason so many churches are filled with nominal Christians who profess to believe in Jesus Christ, but yet look nothing like him, it is because they are fully aware that Jesus died and rose again, but yet they have never responded to that reality by faith and repentance from sin. They know the truth but they've never responded to it. The Christian faith is not simply about knowing what's true. Truth is important. It is necessary. But faith calls us to live our lives in response to whatever God has declared to be true. That is an essential core to Christianity. I hope we've embraced at least somewhat of the reality that, that there is absolute truth. At least the word of God says there's absolute truth. And Paul says dwell on it. So we've got to move on. That's our second point. Focus on what is true. If you find that your thoughts... Your mind's constantly in disorder and disarray. Or you're typically focused on the opposites of what verse 8 says. Whatever is false, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is 
unjust, whatever is impure. You get the point. Then the application is to do what 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, to take your captive's thought and make them obedient to Christ. That's a command. And one of the practical ways, well, how do we do that? And one of the practical ways that we do that is by centering our mind on whatever is true and whatever is honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. And if there's any more excellence or anything praiseworthy, then we should build our real estate there. That's the goal of our second point. I want to apply what Paul tells the Philippians at the end of verse 8, which is dwell on these things. However, we do not have time to cover all eight concepts this morning, so we're only going to concentrate on dwelling on what's true. And instead of us doing the same thing uh, with the other seven points this morning, I would suggest a good exercise to do this week is to take the remaining seven and dwell on those. Turn your thoughts away from discouragement and criticism and impure thoughts and, and feel them with whatever's honorable, with whatever's pure, whatever's just, whatever's lovely, whatever's praiseworthy, so on and so on. I mean, it's not just a good exercise. It's a command. But for, for today, we're just going to fill our thoughts with truth. Number one, focus on the truthfulness. Well, I didn't make it a genitive. Focus on the truthfulness of God's word. Dwell on the reality that the word of God is absolute truth and without error. Where do I make that claim from? Why do I say that? It's not my experience or my feeling that the word of God is true. The word of God claims it about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God. So what we're going through today in Philippians 4 verses 8 through 9 is breathed out by God because it is scripture. Psalm 119 just, just covers the truthfulness of God's word in Psalm 19, 151. And he writes, all of your commandments are truth. In Psalm 19, 142, he says, all of your law is truth. And in Psalm 119, 60, just covers it and says, the sum of your entire word is truth. This is what the word of God claims about itself. Revelation 21, verse 5 says, He who sits on the throne said, who's Jesus, Behold, I am making all things new, and write these words because they are faithful and true. Focus on the truthfulness of God's word. Meditate on that. Number two, focus on truth. When you're afflicted, focus on truth in affliction. It was still in Psalm 119, verse 50. The psalmist says, this is my comfort in my affliction. What comforts you in your affliction? He says, that your word has revived me. 
What, the, what comforts the psalmist in 119 is that the word of God gives him life. That's his comfort. In Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Are you in mourning? Be comforted. Be comforted that God cares, that all wrongs will be righted. Embrace this reality that Romans 8, 28, you probably know it by heart, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. All things, not just good things, all things for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So no matter if you're going through something that's hard or something that's wonderful, God causes us, he's in charge and in control of all of it. That truth should comfort, should bring, it's intended to, the reason Paul writes it to the Romans is to comfort those who are being afflicted, comfort those who are in mourning, comfort those who, who need comfort by reminding them that God is in control. So focusing on that truth reminds you that no matter what you're going through, it's not a surprise to God. It's his design. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. The Apostle Paul writes, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Every affliction that Paul says they're going through manifests the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truthfulness of God's word in in affliction is that your affliction has purpose. They mean something. So don't just glance at it in your daily devotional reading. When you get there, build a pulpit around that passage and preach it to yourself until you believe it. Number three, focus on truth even in death. We're in the face of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55, Paul says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, when these bodies are gone and we get glorified bodies, he says, Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Loved ones, when Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated death. That is a truth to embrace. No matter if you're facing death or someone that you know is close. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14, Paul says, but we don't want you to be uninformed. If, when someone dies, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as those who do, who have no hope, right? For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring Jesus, will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We grieve over death, but we don't grieve as those without hope. There's truth to focus on. Well, how am I supposed to not grieve when I've lost my mother or I've lost my child? How, how can I not? Well, hopefully 
They've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ too. And those that have will return with Christ and live forever. That is supposed to bring comfort. Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Well, that's not physical death, but that is a, a spiritual death. That is application to dying to self. John 6, 40, this is the will of my father. Those are always good. What's God's will for my life? Jesus says, this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Focus on the necessity for redemptive grace. The necessity for redemptive grace. That means you needed it. It means we needed it. I need it. We all need it. None of us are, were worthy for God to choose us. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, you and I. There's a truth to dwell on because it means we didn't deserve it. Isaiah 50, well, maybe, maybe I'll just ride the wave on my own righteousness. Well, Isaiah 57, 12 says, I will the, well, the Lord says, I will expose your righteousness and your works, and they will not benefit you. Even Jesus says in John 15, look, abide in me. Any, nothing outside of abiding in Jesus and abiding in me impresses God. Our works do not oppress God, impress God outside of Christ. Focus on the reality that, that Ephesians, what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that none of us may boast. Titus 3, 5, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done. Can, it, can Paul make it any more clear? Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Focus on the mercy of God. God is merciful. He saved us through, and Paul says, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Focus on the person and redemptive work of Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But it really fits into the second Timothy, because how is there one mediator, and how did God, how did Jesus mediate God and mankind? By making Jesus our sin on the cross. He died 
for our sins. That is the truth that you're supposed to respond to. Do you, not do you believe Jesus died. Do you believe Jesus died for you? And if you're saying to yourself, well, I believe he died, but I don't believe he would ever die for me because I'm too sinful. There's no way he would die for me. Completely is a falsehood against grace. Because grace says that none of us deserved it. Not a single one. None of us can boast. And there was nothing we could do. That's why there's one mediator between us and God. And Jesus mediated that by dying for us. Salvation is found in no one else. Nowhere and no one else. Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is not universal. All roads do not lead to salvation. Only Jesus Christ is the way. Focus on the assurance that your salvation is secure. And if you remember Philippians 1, 6, and I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's the truth to embrace. Your salvation is secure, not because you maintained it, but because Christ has secured it sufficiently with his death and resurrection. Therefore, Paul says to Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Have you sinned previous, or not previous, after you placed faith in Jesus Christ? Here's the truth to focus on. There is no condemnation for you if you sin even after you've placed faith in Christ. Why? Well, because of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ didn't just die for the sins prior to conversion. He died for all of our sins. He's faithful. John says he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. It's amazing he says that he's just to forgive us. As you would think it would be one to be unjust to forgive us. Here's the thing. If we believe that Christ died for our sin, and if his blood is sufficient, and our sins are truly forgiven, then it would be unjust not to forgive us because it would take away from the power of Jesus' blood. John says in 1 John 5, 13 through 14, I write these things to you who believe. In the name of the Son of God, why? That you may know that you have eternal life. God does not want you to doubt salvation. God wants you to know that you're saved and have assurance in your salvation, not by you maintaining it, but by the work of Jesus Christ. Be confident in your salvation. He says, I write these things, so dwell on these things. John 10, 29, Jesus says, my Father who has given them to me. The Father chose you in adoption. 
The Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus says, you're in the Father's hand, and no one is greater or has more strength than him. You're secure. In the famous quote from Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate you and me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Finally, focus on the God who is the essence of truth. He doesn't just say true things. He is truth. John 14, 6 and 7, Jesus said said to him, I am the way and the truth. I am the truth. And the life. No one comes to my Father except through me. If you would have known me, you would have known my Father also. I am the truth because my Father is truth. And then John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. In just those two passages, the Word of God says the Father is truth, The Son is truth, and the Holy Spirit is truth. Everything, they are truth in essence, and everything that comes and is spoken, done by the triune God, is true. Loved ones, dwell on these things. we, We don't have time this morning. There's a million other things we could go through to dwell on. There's seven things to focus on. On what's true. Fill your mind with that throughout the week. You don't have time to fill your mind with anything else. Dwell on these things. And above all, dwell with the God of peace. That's our final point. The antitheses or contrast of the adjectives in verse 8 of true honorable, just, pure. If we contrast that, it's falsehood, dishonor, unjust, defiled, dreadful, unworthy of mention, corruption, and disgraceful. We find nothing pleasant in the contrast to verse 8. Those things are of our enemy And they are contrary to God. Our God is a God of creation, not destruction. He's a God of beauty, not perversion. He is a God of order, not chaos. Light and not darkness. Peace and not pandemonium. Humility, not humiliation. You could replace whatever with God. God is true. God is honorable. God is just. God is pure. God is lovely. 
God is commendable. God is moral excellence. God is praiseworthy. Our God speaks truth. Now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are truth. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. Oh, if that's true, and all scripture is inspired by God, then what claim does that make over the word of God? God is honorable. This is who our God is, Isaiah 42, 21. It pleased the Lord. What pleased the Lord? For his righteousness sake to magnify the law and make it honorable. He acts honorably. And you think of a judge when they come in the courtroom, all stand, your honor, the honorable da-da-da-da-da. But the true honorable judge the God of creation. He makes no unjust judgments. And that is, God is just. Psalm 19.9. The judgments of our Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, our God, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is he. How can you place your confidence in anything other than God if this is true about God? Our God is pure. For I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You therefore shall be holy, for I am holy. First John 3, 3, just, he is pure. First John 1, 5, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Back up, 113 says, God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And instead of looking on our evil at the cross, he looked at Jesus, who was punished for our evil. Our God is lovely. <laughs> He's lovely. Zechariah 9:17. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Psalm 27, that's why we read from that this morning. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. I want to, gaze, I want to see him. I want to seek him in his temple. Everything else is vanity. Everything else is meaningless. I want to see the Lord, David says. God is morally excellent. Jesus said in Luke 18, 19, no one is good but God alone. Isaiah says, praise the Lord for he has done excellent things. Exodus 15, 7, and in the greatness of your excellence, O God, you overthrow those who rise up against you. Psalm 18, 25 through 26, with the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. 
Matthew 5:48. Your heavenly Father is perfect. He's complete. No room to grow, no potential for growing. He is absolute perfection, infinite perfection. I want to conclude with Psalm 86, 8 through 10. It says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made, all the nations you have made, shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. The nations you have made shall come to worship before you and glorify your name. And the New Testament tells us that when Christ returns, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God alone. And because there are none like Him, who is what He is or who is able to do what He can do, He alone is worthy of our praise. That's the last adjective Paul uses in verse 8. If anything is praiseworthy, he is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our giving. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of committing ourselves and our families to worship him. There is nothing God is not worthy of. Therefore, focus on what he has declared as truth. Respond to it accordingly and seek all of your life to dwell with the God of peace. Let us pray. Well, Heavenly Father, God, I, I pray that your word is what would declare truth, not just in minds, Lord, but would filter through the minds into the hearts. For your spirit would come and, and reveal the beauty of your truth and honor and justice and pureness. Your word would, would help proclaim and, and, and show us your, how glorious you truly are. That we would want to respond to that in every way possible, Lord. God, help us today to focus on the things that we should dwell on and to remove the garbage and the rubbish that we don't need to influence us. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.